Welcome back to Bible Time. 1 Thessalonians 4-5 is the continuation of thought from the Apostle Paul by inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was began um, as far as this phrasing goes in verse 4, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Here's our verse today. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, since even as the Gentiles which know not God. Father, please help us to be obedient to this text and grant us the holiness, the purity, the righteousness that you would have to be exhibited in our lives for this lost and dying world to see that they might know that there is a God that liveth and ruleth not only in heaven but here on earth even in this 21st century. Father, we thank you today and we worship you and we praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. He says here, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. And this here is at the um, conclusion of, it is the conclusion that Paul is coming to as he's spoken of his great desire to go to the Thessalonican church and to establish them, their hearts unblameable in holiness before God, or rather to have the Lord Jesus do it. But knowing that God works through people, the apostle Paul desires to be there to teach and to preach. And one of the things that he wanted to communicate to them, but was not able to be there to communicate in person was this thought. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. Now, fornication was mentioned by the apostles as one of the four things that they banned in the Gentile church. Only four basic rules were given to the Gentile church. You can look it up in Acts 15. It's repeated again there and then later in the book of Acts. And amongst those things was this one to keep yourselves from fornication. This is a very, um, very powerful sin that gets into the church and it gets into our hearts. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4, five, he says, not in the lust of concupiscence. You're supposed to possess your vessel, which is how you abstain from fornication. And you're supposed to possess your vessel, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. What is the Bible saying here? What does this mean? Well, I think it means, and a little bird told me it means, and the guru on top of the hill with the long white beard tells me that it means, and everybody's got their opinion, but what does the Bible mean when the Bible says, what the Bible says. The Bible is a self-defining book. That's why we call this podcast Bible Time. That's why we call this Bible Study Bible Time, because the Bible is a self-defining, self-interpreting book. It is a divine book. It is the living Word of God. I knew a man once who told me, I believe in the perfect inspiration and preservation of the living Word of God, Jesus Christ in heaven, but I don't believe that that book is perfect or preserved. And I about went cross-eyed looking at him. How can the living word not be or be preserved if his own word that comes out of his mouth can't be preserved? It's absolutely ludicrous. Not only that, this Bible claims to be the living word of God. It says that the word of God is quick. It is sharp. It is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, I did not quote that perfectly, but it is perfectly preserved in your Bible. 
Get yourself an authorized version, direct translation of the Word of God from the original languages and the received texts into English and read it, and you too will have the perfectly preserved, inspired Word of God. So when everybody has so many opinions, how do you know what the Bible means when it says something? You know what the Bible means by comparing the way the Bible uses a word with the way the Bible uses a word, just like you learned your own language in your natural tongue. You listen to your mom and your dad, your school teacher, your brothers, your sisters, your nieces, your nephews, your friends. If you were friendless and an orphan, you listen to the people yelling, get out and throwing rocks at you as you scampered across the street trying to steal vegetables from their garden. However you did it, you heard people say things and associated the word that came out of their mouth to the actions and the context of what was being said and done. And you could see who they were talking to and how those people responded and you compared all of that information in the mind that God gave you and came to an accurate enough conclusion about the meanings of words to be able to be functional in society. And it was from that point that you were able to begin a higher education and begin to study other men's thoughts and opinions. But God's word is written on a fourth grade reading level. It's written, some people say fifth grade, whatever. It sure ain't college level. It's written on a way that anybody can understand, but the truths it contains are so deep that nobody has ever plumbed the depths of those truths. If you will take the word of God and compare scripture to scripture, you can understand what words mean in the Bible. So here we have the lust of concupiscence. The lust of concupiscence. That's our title today. Lust is a burning desire. Lust is primarily used in the negative sense in the Bible. It is always carnal and fleshly. Lust is mentioned in Exodus 15, 9. I believe that that is the first mention. Hold that up here and let me see that. The first time lust in the singular sense, just L-U-S-T is used in the Bible, is indeed Exodus 15 and verse 9. And here in that text, it's referring to Egypt. Egypt is pursuing, had just been pursuing Israel and chased them into the midst of the Red Sea and were overthrown by the sea. So we see here that the lust of Egypt caused them to, to rebel against Almighty God in the face of revealed truth, in the face of ten plagues, in the face of the death angel, in the face of the locusts, in the face of the water that was turned blood, in the the face of the hail and the fire mingled with the hail in the face of all the great and mighty plagues that God smoke, smote Egypt with Egypt lusted after the revenge against the children of Israel lust here is not used in a sensual sense in the sense of physical relations between people but rather as a desire for revenge do you hear me today a desire to hurt those that hurt me a desire to get even with people and a desire to inflict damage on those who have damaged me. This desire is seen in Exodus 15, 9. The enemy said, says, say the Israelites of Egypt, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My lust shall be satisfied upon them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. They did not want to kiss. They did not want to cuddle. They did not want to hold hands. They did not want to 
snuggle. They wanted to pull out their swords and they wanted to catch the Israelites and chop them up and kill them dead and satisfy their lust, they said, upon the children of Israel. Lust is a burning desire of the body, of the flesh. Lust comes not... it's. It comes, it's expressed out of the heart. Jesus said from the heart, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murder, etc., etc., etc. All these things from, come from the heart of man. And lust is that deep inner burning of the flesh nature, of the flesh of a man for something. Now, lust can be after just about anything. Deuteronomy chapter 12 has the only place in the Bible where lust is mentioned with any kind of positive connotation to it at all, and it's not really positive, which I will show you here in just a second. Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says here in verse 15, I need to go back a page, Deuteronomy 12 and verse 15, notwithstanding thou mayest kill and eat flesh in all thy gates, whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Now this is very important, and we're going to camp here for just a moment, because understanding how the law interacts with people is absolutely critical. How does God's law deal with man? Did God command the children of Israel by the law? Did the law require that they be 100% perfect to please God? No, it did not. Now, you do have to be 100% perfect to please God. But the law made provision for their imperfections. Well, some people will look down on the law and say that the law was bondage. The reality is that man must be bound. One of the men that had a part in forming um, much of this nation, the United States of America, he had a lot of things that he did. Um, well, we won't even go into any question about whether of anything, any of that stuff. We're skipping it. But this man, he said, I believe it was Thomas. Jefferson, he said of the people of the United States, the free people of the United States of America, bind them with chains, bind them with the chains of the Constitution. And what Thomas Jefferson recognized was the innate, inerrant depravity of man, that man is absolutely sin sick and man's burning lusts in his heart will always produce destruction, death, agony, misery, rape, incest, adultery fornication, stealing, corruption, abuse of power, tyranny, and etc. That man will always corrupt. They have a saying, power corrupts, and total power corrupts totally. That is wrong. The answer is the heart of man is corrupt, and man corrupts everything he touches. Man corrupts power, and man corrupts weakness. Man corrupts freedom, and man corrupts slavery. Man corrupts everything that he touches. Whether it's a flower on the side of a hill or whether it's the atmosphere or whether it's the attempt of man to purge the atmosphere and green peace and etc man corrupts everything that he touches man causes animals to go extinct and man worships animals and tries to raise them from the dead and spends millions of dollars bowing down to the creature rather than the creator everything man touches man corrupts it is not power that corrupts man do you hear me today why why do, why do we say power corrupts man? Rabbit. Let's shoot it and move on. Why does God, why do people say power corrupts man? Because everybody that gets power seems to get corrupt. The reality is that it's not the power. You are blaming the wrong problem. The, the reality is that power gives corrupt man opportunity to express what is already in his wicked heart. 
That's the reality. The wickedness is already in the heart. The Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? There in Deuteronomy chapter 15 or chapter 12, I'm sorry, in verse 15, it said that they could eat flesh whatsoever their um, heart lusted after. Now, of course, it was within the confines of the clean and the unclean animals. He said the clean and the unclean people could eat thereof. And then in verse 20 uh, of chapter 12, he goes on and says, um, again, thou mayest eat flesh because he says, if you say, I will eat flesh and thou shalt say, I will eat flesh because thy soul longeth to eat flesh. Thou mayest eat flesh whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. So here we see lust tied to longing, lust tied to longing. And ironically, it's tied to food here in the second place that lust is brought up in the Bible. Verse 21, which this isn't actually the word lust. This is another use um, lusteth. If the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to put his name there be too far from thee, he says in verse 21, then thou shalt kill of thy herd and of thy flock, which the Lord hath given thee. And as I, as I have commanded thee, and thou shalt eat in thy gates whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. Again, a provision made within the confines of the law for a man who was hungry and desperate to get a roast lamb dinner. He says, don't do it in your gates because that's going, and I I won't tell you the because that I think it is because that doesn't matter. God didn't tell him why. God said, God help us today. He did tell him why in more detail that we're not getting into, but God told him, don't eat it in your gates, come to the temple, slay it and sacrifice it at the temple and eat. And the purpose of that was to keep their longing for a roast dinner from getting them to enter into idolatry. And there I lied to you. And I told you the reason for it. God help me, anoint me, help me to preach right. So there's this lust, this longing, this desire for food. And you must remember here that these people were under the law. Whenever God told them to go ahead and bring it there and eat it, remember they were under the law. There's a lot of things in the law. Slavery is allowed in the law. It's just controlled. Polygamy is allowed in the law. It's just controlled. Adultery to a degree, the divorce and remarriage of people is allowed in the law. Law. Jesus said from the beginning, this was not so. But for the hardness of your hearts, Moses gave you this commandment. Now, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is not the problem here. Man is the problem. But God's holy laws that he made for man were designed for a corrupt, unholy man that had to be controlled or it would self-destruct. Man was bent on self-destructing. The imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. So God gave the law. Now the law made nothing perfect. Hebrews seven nineteen says, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And that's one of the things that we're going to focus in on towards the end of this, that better hope and the better promises that God gave, because the law cannot make you perfect. Here he says that we're not to um, possess our vessels in the lust of concupiscence. He says, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. So (coughs) he's saying, you should not live this way, but if you try to not live that way in your own strength, you will fail. You've got to have a better promise and you've got to have a better hope than the law because the law made nothing perfect. The context there is beautiful. Um, We'll move on. We'll maybe come back to that later if we have time. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. 
It says here, wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Get that. The law was added because of transgression. People say the law of God has always been the law of God. Bogus, baloney, hogwash, blasphemy. Bunch of stinking garbage. Lord, help me. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Jesus said of the law for a second witness, in the beginning, it was not so. When Adam and Eve were created, they were created perfect. Were there sacrifices? No. You say, why do you get so frustrated about this? You go and try and reason with a bunch of Hebrew Israelite type guys and Hebrew roots guys that are trying to keep the law for righteousness and show them the scriptures and watch them cling to their little tassels on their coats and break every other commandment nearly in the whole Bible and think that they're somehow more righteous than you and more enlightened and they will not come to the cross of Calvary and you might get frustrated too. Forgive me if I get in the flesh. I need to not. That's not right. And there's a better promise and I need to lay hold of it. Lord, fill me with your spirit and help me in Jesus name. The law was added because of transgressions. Look right here in this same text. After it says it was added because of transgression, it says, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. There's those better promises. The law was a stopgap. And and I'm specifically referencing the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was a stopgap. God put it in place because of the hardness of the hearts. And anybody that goes back to keeping the law to please God is shouting with all their voice and both arms raised to heaven without even knowing it. I have a hard heart and I'm not willing to change. That's what it's all about. The keeping of the law will make nothing perfect. But Jesus came and said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. You are commanded to be perfect. But the law made nothing perfect. And you go back to the law, you will never, ever, ever get there. Nobody ever has, nobody ever will. It was added because of transgression. The law is an admission of guilt. Everything about the Mosaic law is a giant, glaring, screaming admission of sin problems. Do you know what people that get in to go back to the law are telling you when they do that? They're saying, I have an uncontrollable flesh. I am failing utterly to keep Christ's commandments and I have not found the power that he's promised in the word of God in the New Testament. So I'm going back to the old, to the carnal ordinances. The Bible calls the law carnal ordinances. They're made for the flesh and they are trying to bind their own sinful flesh with chains because they know it's loose and out of control and they can't laugh. So they try and chain their flesh down with the laws. That's what they're all doing. And you'll find if you go deep enough in those groups, they really won't usually talk about it. But every group out there that goes back to the law, Amish, Mennonite, apostolic holiness, every one of them is steeped in adultery, fornication, incest, immorality, pornography is running rampant in the background behind them because they're living by the law, the carnal ordinances. And the harder they try to chain down their flesh, the louder it roars. <coughs> you think I'm off the deep end. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, the greatest law keepers that ever lived, a wicked and adulterous generation asketh a sign. 
he called out the most righteous by the law generation that had ever lived on the face of the earth and told them you're a bunch of adulterers. A wicked and adulterous generation asketh a sign. <clears throat> the law made nothing perfect. It says here in verse 24 of Galatians, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. How many of you, heads up, how many of you know a baby that has just been born that gets put on a school bus and sent to school? Nobody. When do kids start having schoolmasters? When are they put under schoolmasters? Either in a homeschool where the parents are now schoolmastering them, or in a private school, or in a Christian school, or in a parochial school, God forbid. You want your children raped, send them to the Catholic Church. And I say that without shame of saying it, but with much shame to even know the reality of it. When do they get sent to school? After all the innocence that's left in them is drained out and there's nothing left but booger head. That's when. When, they, when the sweet is gone and the <clears throat> spice comes in and you're having to deal with things and they have to be disciplined, they have to be tutored, they have to be taught, they need to learn how to stand in line, they need to learn how to sit down, they need to learn how to shut their mouths, they need to learn how to study, they need to learn how to obey, they need to learn how to apply themselves. The schoolmaster comes in after innocence. When innocence is gone, whenever the, the goodness that's there is evaporating and they have to be tra trained in order to not become a dysfunctional wreck in society, culture supplements school. Did you know that the difference between convicts and school children is age? I didn't get any response. The difference between felons and school children is age. The difference is a little child at seven and eight years of, old, of age that's jumping up and down and pulling Susie's hair and pinching Sal's, Sally while he flirts at the other girl across the way and then gets in a fist fight with the other boys on the playground would be in jail if he was 21 and doing it. The only difference is age. And we recognize this and we say, look, they need a schoolmaster, so then they're put under the schoolmaster. Here the Bible says the law was a schoolmaster, our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. When that child matures, hopefully, and they grow to a point that you can trust them to walk around and drive around and act in an adult manner and function in a way that is legal and according to the laws you turn them loose and they no longer need the schoolmaster because they are now able to operate under a higher law the laws of the land this is what the law was for the law was a schoolmaster so the law did not try to completely take away sin the law instead tried just contained the sinners until Christ came. This is why the law, and some of you think this guy's gone nuts, but this is just the raw reality of it. This is why the law allowed slavery to continue, but limited it. This is why the law of God, listen to me, the Old Testament the law of God is the most pro-woman document that had ever hit the earth. 
and has ever hit the earth. God limited man's abuses of women in the Old Testament law. People who look at it from a feminazi perspective where they think that women ought to walk around with a 20-foot silver bull whip in their pantyhose whipping men into submission while they fly around with a shield are generally appalled at the Bible. And they say, oh, that Bible's chauvinist stuff. And it's not. The reality is that God was limiting the fallen abuses of man against women. And the women that got in under this thought it was a pretty good deal. Ask Ruth about it. Ask Naomi. Ask Ruth. They liked it. Ask, how about Noah Hogla, Milka, Terza, the daughters of Zelophehad, who found in the law women's rights. How about that? People, listen, this liberal crowd out here twists and perverts every bit of truth. The law was regulating because of transgressions. It was not perfecting. God does not hold up in his perfect law a perfect man, but rather a perfect God. Do you hear me today? The law does not make men perfect. The law makes men aware of a perfect God and their perfect inability to be perfect. That is the purpose of the law. The law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And here in the Old Testament law, God told them, bring what, bring your sacrifices and your offerings whatsoever thy soul lusteth after and eat it here in the gates. So this word lust is a strong desire, a strong desire that God regulated in the Old Testament law. But now in the New Testament, we find that the word lust has no positive mention. There is not a place in the New Testament that gives a positive connotation to the word lust. Lust in the New Testament is not to be entertained by the Christian. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.13 the belly for meats and meats for the belly. Turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians 6.13 he says, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The lust that it's talking about is a longing desire of the body. Now that longing desire, there is a place and a time to long with desire for your wife, but the use of the word lust specifically in the Bible is not used as a positive longing desire. Do you hear me? It's used as a negative longing desire every single time. Not a good godly desire, a very wrong worldly desire. And that's multiplied here by the use of the word concupiscence. Lust itself is not to be entertained in the New Testament even for food, as we saw that in the second there in Deuteronomy that the word was being used in regards to food. The Bible says, Paul said, I bring under my body and keep it in subjection. I meant to get that reference and I failed to get that written down but he says lest having preached to others I myself should be cast away so the body must be brought into subjection Romans 8 says that if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body ye shall live and in Paul's epistle to the Corinthian church when he was giving permission to the members of the church to marry and saying that it's perfectly okay to marry but that you might be able to do more for God if you don't marry and suggesting that they throw themselves into the work of the ministry 
ministry. And unless God made it clear to Mary, they should focus on Christ as he's teaching all of that. He said, the time hath come that they be that are married be as though they are not married. Now, the same apostle Paul says that if you're married, the husband should render to the wife due benevolence and likewise, the likewise, the wife to the husband, lest you be tempted for your incontinency. So he did tell them to live together. And the Bible tells us to live together according to knowledge, to dwell together according to knowledge. <clears throat> but an overwhelming desire that cannot be controlled is ungodly. It's ungodly and unfound in scripture. There's a, a book that was put out. I hesitate to even, um, even mention it. I don't really even want to mention it, but the authors, it would shock some of you that don't know about it to know the authors. Cause some of you out there, especially online probably have listened or read some of their books before and been blessed by them. And then they put out this book that went in wild in circulation through Christianity, um, apparently in the nineties and thousands, but this book, if, and if if I got that right, then that's great. I'm not exactly sure. I tried. I don't, I've stayed away from this book. But this book, the basic idea of it was about um, marriage and the physical relations of marriage. And it basically taught everyone unrestricted desire to let vent to your desires between yourselves and to have no self-control between each other, to vent every desire, every urge, everything that you want to do, to just do it to your wife and your wife do it to your husband and that that would be good. And that is not biblical. God says that we're to dwell with them according to knowledge. The Bible talks in Romans about men who leave the natural use of the woman. You can do that without leaving your room. Now, in any case here, this, um, this that it's talking about here, this lust, this desire, he says, I bring under my body. He says, if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. But now we get to this word concupiscence and we have this word concupiscence three times in the new Testament. Once here in our text, once in Colossians chapter three, where we looked at it, um, in detail once before in Colossians three, five, and you can look that one up. We're going to go to Romans. 1 8 and look at concupiscence here and then we're going to look at the answer to this great problem because I need the answer now you guys say all right this guy preaching this thing he, some of you are thinking out there he's got it all together he's got it all figured out not a chance don't ask my wife I haven't got it all figured out but I have found the precious promises, the better promises, and I have found the way that God has made for us to conquer this thing. And as long as I walk in the spirit, as the Bible says, I do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But you get me in the flesh, it's ugly. I don't, I don't do well in the flesh. You can ask people that know me. When I get in the flesh, it's as ugly as anybody else's flesh. Flesh is flesh. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8 7, Romans 7 and verse 8. I knew something looked wrong. Romans 7 and verse 8. But sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. Now this is going to bring us into um, a place where you've got to put your thinker on. You can run to the dictionary and get, especially if you get a Webster's 1828, you can get a decent definition of concupiscence. But again, you don't have to have the dictionary. There's a better way. You can look at how the Bible uses concupiscence, and that's what we're going to do here. We have three uses of this word. Sometimes there's words um, that are only used once in the Bible. It leaves you a lot more dependent on dictionaries, but you still have the context. 
So here um, on this word concupiscence, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence without the law, sin was dead. This concupiscence then is something that is within. It's not something that's on the outside. A lot of sin is done on the outside. Concupiscence is a sin on the inside. It says here in chapter 7 and verse 7, What shall I say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, sin took an opportunity offered to it by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, took me beyond lust, took me beyond plain old sin, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What does he mean? What does he mean that sin revived and I died? What is he talking about here? You see here, this is this sin that you commit against God, that you commit in your ignorance and somewhat innocence is still sin. There's a myth out there of some kind of um, so-called innocence of the human race. Um, a lot of people th say, oh, children are innocent. Whatever. Why don't you have a couple? Try and raise them. I don't know an innocent child. You say, oh, but babies are so innocent. Now I'll make a bunch of you la mad. Babies lie. The Bible says, from the womb. He's, the psalmist said, I have gone astray from my mother's womb. Babies lie, but they do it without knowing that they're lying. You say, oh, well, that, does, that means it's not sin. No, that's bogus. That means that they're alive without the law. That's what the Bible's talking about. They don't have a consciousness of offending God. So they do it with impunity. That doesn't make it better. If your neighbor isn't aware of the fact that taking your apples out of your apple tree is wrong and stealing, are you any less offended with him whenever you find no apples on your tree and see him peeling them on his back porch? It doesn't matter whether he knows it's stealing or not to you. It only matters to him. And this concept of innocence applies to you, not to God. God sees you as a sinner. The Bible's clear about this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And even if you don't think that you sinned, but God says you have, God still sees you as a sinner. The difference is you're alive in your sin. As long as you don't know that God is angry with you, you can do that sin and measure out the cost and profit of your relations with other human beings, and it's not a big deal. Did you know everybody in the world, from the Hindus to the Muslims to the Buddhists to the Catholics and all the other cults in the whole world, everybody in the whole world except the born-again Christians, believers and followers of Jesus Christ, who are bought with a price and regenerated, everybody in the world who is in their natural state and every Bible-believing born-again Christian before he was saved sins against Almighty God. And when they sin against Almighty God and they don't know it's sin, they enjoy it. Did you know that? They enjoy it. Why don't they enjoy it? Well, if they don't enjoy it, it's because other people tell them not to enjoy it. And this is where your major philosophers and psychiatrists get involved in this. Because they think that if nobody ever told you it was sin to commit adultery, then everybody would do it and have fun and nobody would get mad about it. And that's a lie. 
It's a lie from the devil. Because God has written some law on your hearts and he's put some law in your heart that you know. And you know some things are sin. And as you get older, you become aware of the reality of sin, even if nobody tells you about it. And for sake of time, we won't get deep into it. But I think of a, a culture, a little group of people who practiced wicked immorality. And they moved into a place up, up there called Oneida, New York. And they started making silver for the little commune. And they were making, and that's where the Oneida um, silverware company comes from. Orig- that's their original start. But that company was there to support all of the wickedness and immorality of these people. And these people would train their children to be wicked. And as they raised their children, their own children began to rebel against the sin and say, we don't want to live this way. This is wrong. And leave, and they would leave the community and the community nearly died. The community nearly went extinct. And then they ended up in, let, in the next generation destroying all of the wicked laws and allowing the community to live by the laws of nature. Nature's God, one man and one woman for life and marriage vows, and then they went on from there. And nobody had told those children it was a sin to commit immorality. They had been taught their whole life that it was the right way to live. God puts this in the heart, but this is what Paul's talking about here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Sin revived. Before sin revived, I did what I did with impunity. I've told you my story. I was a little boy. I would steal cookies, and it was worth it. And mom couldn't make the price high enough for me to not try. But when God spoke to my heart as I, re- as I quoted the law of God, thou shalt not steal. And I realized God was real and his law was real. Sin revived and I died. Now I wasn't, now I wasn't just taking a cookie I wanted. Now I was stealing. This is the whole idea behind the word concupiscence. He says, but sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for without the law, sin was dead. Sin is cruel. Sin is very cruel. Sin is yummy. Sin is shiny. Sin is pretty. Sin is flashy. Sin is uplifting. Sin is exhilarating. Sin gives you a rush. Sin gives you a high. But sin costs. And sin makes slaves out of those that enjoy it. It's like a trap for a raccoon with a shiny object hanging over it. And the steel teeth of the trap hiding beneath the leaves waiting to snap shut. Every now and then you'll find a three-legged raccoon that had to chew its arm off to get out of the trap. And that reminds me of the verse Jesus said, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is more profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish than that thy whole body should be cast into hell. That raccoon had more wisdom than your average man. And he chewed his arm off to get out of sin. Now, to a raccoon, sin's a little different. But in any case, we're moving on. So here's sin to man. Sin is tasty. Sin is yummy. Sin is pretty. Sin feels good. Sin looks good. Some of you are cringing right now saying, why would he say that? Because it's true. But sin hurts when it's done. And the price for sin, the wages of sin, is death. And sin makes a slave out of you. It wraps its chains around you and drags you down into hell. Sin is a monster. 
of such awful mean that to be hated needs but to be seen but seen too oft familiar with face we first endure then pity then embrace sin wraps its chains around you and one of the greatest chains that sin will ever place on you is the chain of concupiscence here it says that sin wrought in me all manner of concupiscence for I was alive without the law once but when the commandment came sin revived and I died and the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good was then that which is good made death unto me God forbid but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful here's what's happening here's the here's the mechanic of what Paul is preaching here. And you can test this out throughout scripture. Show me if I'm wrong, but bring scripture, not your opinions. I've got no time or use for your opinions any more than you really truly have for mine. But the Bible is what will stand the test of time. So here's the mechanics of what's happening. Sin says, come over here, taste, touch, smell, feel, hear, And when you come and enjoy it, you're alive and enjoying it until the commandment comes that says, thou shalt not taste that, thou shalt not hear that, thou shalt not smell that, thou shalt not feel that, thou shalt not hear that. And when the commandment comes, then all of a sudden you recognize that you need to not do it, right? When it says thou shalt not steal, then you shouldn't steal, right? Right? Do you recognize that? So before you were just taking something you wanted. Now the commandment says thou shalt not steal. And you look at the very same apple, the very same cookie, the very same neighbor's wife, whatever it is that you're looking at, that you were looking at before. Now, instead of looking at something you want, now you look at a sin that you want to commit. That's what the commandment does. Now, instead of looking at something that just looks yummy and free to take, now the sign says, here's the price and you can't pay it. The little boy in the store looks at the wall of candy. His lips are smacking. His tongue is wiggling around in his mouth and the slobber is working around in his jowls and he wants it and he reaches for it and he takes it and he's so happy and he unwraps it and he puts it in his mouth and he eats it. And he puts the wrapper in his pocket and he goes home and his mother gets home and finds the wrapper in his pocket. Says, how did you get that? I got it from the store. That wasn't yours. Did you pay for it? No, I didn't pay for it. You stole. And suddenly that which was good became death. The commandment thou shalt not steal is a good commandment. It protected him from theft. But now the very commandment that was good for him has become death. And that thing that he wants, he wants even more than he ever wanted it before because now he's tasted it. And now he stands in front of the same wall of candy a week later, staring at all the different flavors. His mouth is salivating. His lips are smacking. His tongue is going back and forth across his lips. But now instead of just wanting something yummy, he's thinking about stealing. 
This is what concupiscence is. This is what the lust of concupiscence is. It's when the inner longings in our heart have been shown by God to be sinful, and then we go on longing even though it's sin. And here's the worst part about the whole thing. It comes to everybody naturally to do it. He says in here, not in the lust of concupiscence as the Gentiles, which know not God before. Now, instead of just satisfying my desire now, if in concupiscence, concupiscence makes the man desire to kill. Now he desires to dishonor. Now he desires to steal. Now he desires to commit adultery. Now he desires to bear false witness. Now he desires to idolatrate. Now with revelation and courting the desire still in his heart and finding it not the least bit assuaged by the knowledge of a thrice holy God and his laws against his natural desires... That man becomes a treasonous rebel against God, lusting after not just an object, but lusting after sin. Oh, the lure of sin. Oh, the draw of the world. Oh, how bright it sparkles and shines and pleases the heart within. But oh, the price of sin, eternal death and doom, its pleasures endure for a night, but judgment is coming soon. Jesus became sin, that righteous I might be. He suffered and bled in agony to work to wash my foul spirit clean. Shall I then sin again, whom Christ's blood hath made free? Forbid it, God, and grant to me thy holy power within. This is what we're going to look at next. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5 real quick, just real quick, and then we're going to jump into the hope and the power to overcome the lust of concupiscence. And then we've got to wrap this thing up. First Corinthians five says it is reported commonly that there's fornication among you. And it says fornication that is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And our commandment here in this text that we looked at is that we are to keep ourselves from concupiscence, not in the lust of concupiscence as the Gentiles, which know not God. What happened to this man that caused him to have his father's wife? Well, first he lusted after her, and then as God revealed the depth of the sin of that, he lusted in concupiscence and began to desire the sin. And once he began to desire the sin, the defenses were gone. And then he entered into the sin because that's what he wanted. That's what he was being, that's what he was lusting after. That's what he was being drawn to was the sin. And as we studied in Colossians chapter three and verse five, the, the shift, the cruel shift that sin brings here is the shift from desiring the object to the desire of sin. And this is why you see so many broken marriages in our day. I encourage you to look up um, in the podcast. If you're listening online, Colossians three, five, the podcast related to that. We went over that in some detail. We don't have time right now. So here this man had his father's wife and Paul said to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh and said, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He said, if any man that is be called a brother that is called a brother, be a fornicator or a covetor or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. God help us today. Second Corinthians six 
2 Corinthians 6, 1 Peter says, Be ye holy, as it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And brings forward that command of God from the Old Testament. 2 Corinthians 6 here um, says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Verse um, 1 of the next chapter, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Run back to Hebrews seven. Let's just let's just grab a couple of verses here on our way on our way out here. This is a very negative topic to study, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. But there is a very positive promise that's given here. Verse 19 of chapter 7 of Hebrews, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. So it is the better hope that makes us perfect. It's the better hope that um, helps us to draw nigh to God. And we see in verse 24, this man, Jesus Christ, made, verse 22, made a surety of a better testament. That is a better covenant. This is a whole bunch of betters that come here, better promises better covenant, a better hope. And he says here, this Jesus became a better priest. It says, this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So therefore God has given us something greater than the lust of concupiscence, something more powerful than this lust of concupiscence. Go to Romans chapter 8 in Jude verse 24. It says that God is able to keep them from from falling that come unto God through Jesus Christ. You can look it up and get the actual verbatim word of God in Jude verse 24 later. But he is able to keep them from falling. God is able. No man that falls does it because God let him fall. He does it because he chose to fall. If he's a believer, if he's born again by the power of God, you say, oh, oh never mind. We're not going there. We got to keep moving. So Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter 8 follows on Romans chapter 7 that we've already looked at where the sin worked in me all manner of concupiscence and now I desire sin. In verse 7 and 14 he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. There's the slavery that sin brings you under. He says, I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. And he says, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good. I find not for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil, which I would not that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. This is for the born again believer. The lost man is nothing but a body of death and a body of sin. But the saved man here has sin dwelling in him. Verse 21, I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This is that lust of concupiscence, the extreme desire 
desire and um, for sin that brings me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. What is the law of sin? It's the law of the slave master. It's the law of the captor. It is the law of the conqueror. It is the law of the warrior king who has taken by force. This is the law of sin. It's the chains of darkness. It's the law of the pack of the wolf pack, dog eat dog, the yeast devouring the yeast. This is the law, the humanistic evolutionist survival of the fittest, the law of sin, which is in my members. And he cries out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And the answer comes in verse 25 in part. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's his hope. Remember the better hope in Hebrews? Here is the better hope, our Lord Jesus Christ. And the better hope begins with his priestly intercession, but it goes much deeper than that. And we'll just touch this and we'll close today. But here he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, and he qualifies it, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, listen to me, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He says, for what the law could not do. Remember it said the law could make nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. That's a parallel passage. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither indeed can be so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God those are the lost but ye are not in the flesh but in the spirit if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you now if any man have not the spirit of Christ he is none of his so these that are in the flesh are lost they cannot please God but those that are in Christ that have the spirit of God dwells in them he says to them in verse 10 and if Christ be in you the body is dead because of sin sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, there's a second further work that goes beyond salvation here. He says, if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So that shall also proves in absolutely indisputably that God wants to go beyond salvation with you and through Christ and in Christ there is power to live a holy life. Therefore, brethren, he says in verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And there it is. There's the better hope. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. The better hope, Hebrews after chapter 8, verse 6 says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises, far better than the law could ever give. God tells us here, not in the lust of concupiscence. He tells us to possess our vessel. But if you're going to do that by the law, then you're going to live in a constant 
in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. That's how the world contains their vessel. That's how the world possesses. Do you get that today? Do you see where we've been going with this? That the world possesses its vessel in the lust of concupiscence. What does that mean? It overcomes the violent burning desire to sin against Almighty God and their neighbor by force of social pressure, by force of bondage to laws, by force of rules and regulations and personal discipline. And so they sit there burning every day. They burn, they burn, they burn with their, in their lust of concupiscence, desiring to sin against God, but just trying to keep that burn down. A true master of the world, a true worldly wise man can sit in a bar full of wicked, half-naked people doing ungodly things and not hardly even be moved by it because he has learned to sear his conscience and keep his fire fed enough that he's never really hungry. He just keeps it fed with enough extreme perversion that he doesn't really um, go off the deep end in public. He saves that for his private time. That's how the world possesses their vessel. That's how the world goes around with blowing out and going off the deep end. But we as Christians are called to not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, to possess our vessels in what? In sanctification and in honor, in set apart practical holiness, both in the body and in the soul and in the spirit which are God's. This is what God has called us to not to somehow control the burning fire through law and effort and force of will, but rather through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit of God in obedience to Christ, giving honor to God the Father through obedience to Christ's commands and God thereby honoring us with the presence and power of his son, Jesus Christ, by which we can live a holy life. Father, we thank you for this. We worship you. We praise you. We give you all the glory, Lord, for anything good that comes out of our lives, that we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh. And you're not even calling us to live this life of burning lust of concupiscence where I force myself to go to church and I force myself to be faithful to my wife and I force myself not to look at um, nasty things and I force myself to keep my mouth from saying wicked things, but rather a sanctification, a power from from, from you, Lord God, that comes within and then goes without, Lord God, and separates me unto you, Lord. I pray that you'd increase my love, increase my faith, which worketh by love, so that I can work by love. I thank you, Lord, for these precious promises, better promises, a better covenant, a better testament, a better priesthood, a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better way to live, Lord God. I thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.